Matthew 7. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 11 today. Jesus speaking here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. How many of you enjoy giving gifts? Yeah, it feels good, right, to give gifts. Um, How many of you enjoy shopping for the gift? Significantly smaller numbers, I notice. I think most of us hate it, and I think that's why they invented registries, right? That's kind of the whole point. That way you don't have to be creative or think about things, right? Now, I personally hate registries just as a principle you know I think because they're very impersonal things aren't they you know like they're only ideal like it's great to have a registry when there's somebody I completely don't know right but then I start asking myself why am I invited to this party you know like that kind of thing like it just feels awkward no matter how you slice it and I know they're very practical things but let's just say they're not very romantic right and like most men I I personally find gift shopping kind of a, a stressful ordeal And so we have an understanding in my house, I only do Christmas. That's what I do. That's my thing. I don't do birthdays. I don't do anniversaries. I don't do Valentines. None of that nonsense. And I established that early in our marriage just to eliminate and keep the expectations low. Um, So once a year, one and done, don't ask me for anything else. Now, there was a time in my life when I used to enjoy Christmas shopping. Even that's getting old at this point, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like shopping generally, right? Most men don't, right? Uh, When I go shoe shopping, Georgia thinks it's a miracle because it takes me about five minutes to buy sneakers. That's how I roll. I grab one that looks manly with a little bit of real leather for street cred's sake, and then uh, I grab a pair in my size. I try on one of them. I don't actually walk in them. And then I pay for them, and I leave. And, uh, you know, last year I needed church shoes, and I needed sneakers, and I needed sandals. And I was in and out of the Skechers outlet in about 20 minutes, and I was ashamed it took me that long. So that's how I shop. Again, not much of a shopper. The other day we were listening to my my oldies playlist, which is very good, and and that song by the Miracles came on. Uh, My mama told me, you better shop around. I don't know how many of you remember that one. And, of course, he was talking about shopping around for the right girl, and... Georgia remarked, well, you didn't take that advice because I married the first serious girlfriend I had, right? And she said, you know, you shop for women like you shop for shoes. (laughs) She might be on to something. So gift giving isn't like my forte, right? Like I splurge once a year so I don't have to think about it again, and I bet a lot of men can relate. And it's because I think part of it is that we don't want to screw it up. You don't want to buy something that will be a disappointment. And so it becomes a psychological game, I think, in many marriages especially. You know, what does she really want? 
And perhaps some of you have gone through the terrifying experience of asking your wife what she wants for Christmas, only for her to insist, oh, I don't need anything. I'm not fussy. I just want us to be together. And we panic because she can't possibly mean that, right? And, uh, you know, this is the cliche of every man at every holiday, buying flowers the night before and a Hallmark card to say it nicer than we know how, and that's the stereotype. Men are notoriously bad at gift-giving, right? That's not universal. In my marriage, it's kind of the opposite, actually. For years, I insisted on being surprised at Christmas, right, uh, so that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give Georgia or my parents or anything else a wish list. And then, lo and behold, I'm perplexed to find out, like, the kind of weird things I end up with. So gift-giving, at least the way many of us do, or at least in my house, is sort of a fraught psychological game, uh, a duel of wits where we try to read each other's minds, and we can't, and so that's why most of our gifts are not very memorable. I can name precious few gifts I have received from people over the years, and many of those I only remember because of how bad they were. But the blame for that is really on my shoulders, right? I don't get the things I really want or could really use because I don't ask. I feel awkward asking. I feel like it's presumptuous to tell you what I want for Christmas, right, or any other time. So I pretend I have no preference, and then I'm confused that no one could read my mind. I don't know, am I the only crazy one here? Am I the only one who goes through this game? Maybe I'm the only one in here. I might be slightly psychotic. But I, I think, you know, I must not be the only one, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't find it necessary to address this as a problem in our prayer life, right? And of course, you know, he's not talking about Christmas wish lists, right? He's addressing the fact that many of us, even those who don't mind telling people what we want for Christmas, right? We, many of us, much of the time, have a hard time asking God for things. Why else would Jesus include this in this sermon? Apparently he knows that we're bad at this. As Jesus' disciples, we have access to the very throne room of God, right? And yet sometimes we tend to keep our deepest desires to ourselves and we're reluctant to take advantage of one of the greatest gifts we've been given. We are the most privileged of all people, but we voluntarily check that privilege. Why? And I think this is a connected question to why we sometimes find prayer difficult in general. I think we sometimes feel awkward talking to God. Uh, I think of some of that comes from a, a subtle form of atheism. I think the enemy likes whispering in your ear and telling you that no one's listening and you're only talking to yourself. Uh, I told Georgia just this week that when I pray silently, my mind tends to wander, but when I pray out loud, I do sometimes feel like I'm talking to myself. It can feel like that when you get distracted, but that's a lie, and that's the enemy uh, whispering in our ears because he loves when we feel alone, especially in prayer. Sometimes we do get distracted when we're praying, and our mind goes down rabbit trails, and that's nothing new. I mean, you've watched the disciples falling asleep while they were supposed to be praying in Gethsemane. Apparently, this is not a new problem, right? But even when we're praying in earnest, I think we tend to hold back a bit. I think we don't tell him everything that's on our hearts and minds, and, and maybe in some respect we're trying to be respectful and put our best foot forward, and that's not necessarily a bad instinct, but I think sometimes we feel like our petty concerns and how we're really feeling are not worthy of God's time. Like it's presumptuous for us to ask him for what we really want and what our real desires are. 
uh, I think we feel almost disrespectful about it and think to ourselves, like, why would he care about these stupid little things? And I think we often forget Paul's admonition, and we've talked about this before, but when he says in Philippians 4 that we should not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in everything, he says. In other words, don't stop at daily bread. You give him all your requests. Paul is saying no issue is too petty. No request is too small for him. Even your most secret phobias and your heartaches, the stupid stuff. All of that is fair game. God wants us to share that stuff. But as we read this passage and what Jesus says here, it sounds like he thinks our biggest problem is that we don't really expect that the Father's going to answer. We don't really believe he's going to give us good gifts. We expect to be let down by our Father. Maybe we're projecting because we feel like our earthly fathers are not perfect or something and we figure he's like them. But I think we struggle to be honest in prayer and we ask for very little things. We can ask for daily bread and such, small stuff that we're relatively confident that he's going to deliver on. Uh, But we don't ask him always for the extras for fear that he might say no. It's not so much that we're atheists. Uh, We believe he's there, but maybe we doubt his generosity. We don't believe that he's either great enough or good enough to give the good gifts, so we set the bar nice and low so that God will have an easy time meeting our expectations. But Jesus, who knows his sheep so very well and knows how we think, says this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, these commands kind of sound obvious, but Jesus finds it necessary to give this as a command because we're not good at it. And I think this is true even in our human relationships, right? We don't like to ask, seek, and knock. We feel like things should just kind of happen, I think, a lot of the time. Maybe we're just lazy. I routinely have to tell one of my children, I don't have to name, we have to remind (coughs) her uh, to actually ask for things. Because every child, and we had to do this with all of them at some point, every child masters this art of making seemingly random statements like, Dad, I'm thirsty. And the only proper response is, Hi, thirsty, I'm Dad, at that point. And, uh, and then I have to follow that up by asking, like, is that a question or what? And I will refuse to get them a drink until they actually ask for one, you know? And... Uh, And that's kind of funny in its own context. Uh, But even as a grown-up, I realize that I still hate asking for help. I'm a man, a grown man, and I refuse to ask for directions, right? Uh, It pains my soul to ask for help. Now now we have Google Maps and it's a lot easier, but like, you know, never before. I would much rather complain and vent my frustrations than talk to somebody about them and try to actually get help. George and I, we're both like this about a number of things. Like, you know, if, if we're going to order food, we're going to order pizza, somebody has to draw the short straw because really neither of us like talking on the phone, much less asking a stranger to make us food. It feels awkward. <laughs> we'll have to deal with this before third Sunday, hon. We'll figure it out. It's okay. We also don't like looking for things either, do we? My kids sure don't. Uh, I've seen the way some of them look for their shoes when they're missing and we're trying to get out the door to a party or be on time to church. 
I have never seen a more lackadaisical approach and casual definition of seeking than what you see in those moments at times. But I'm not exactly a world-class hunter myself, uh, so they must get it from me. This week I went to multiple hardware stores and spent a good bit of time complaining because I was looking for an adapter to hook up something in my uh, air conditioning unit. I complained for days that the part was impossible to find anywhere, and I was all set to send an angry email to the manufacturer of the unit. Why didn't you include these things? I was going to put a bad review on Amazon. And three days into this process, I found the adapter in a bag on my workbench where I had left it like a year ago. But I get so angry because I feel like I shouldn't have to look. Why isn't it just here? Things should just be where I want them in a given moment. So I hate looking, and then I therefore do a lousy job of it. And this is why every man fears when he tells his wife, you know, I can't find something, and then she goes to look for it herself. We strongly suspect that she'll find it in a mere matter of seconds, and she'll come back with that smug, exasperated look on her face and won't let me forget it. Knocking on doors. That's a challenge, too, even in the regular world, right? Uh, I worked in politics briefly, got out of that, right? But that's the main thing you do when you're on a campaign, and I came to despise it. And it's a major reason I gave politics up. I felt like a Jehovah's Witness, but with an even more pointless message. (laughs) Almost no one likes answering the door for strangers. And when they did, they were often rude and dismissive. I honestly would feel relieved when I would knock and nobody answered. I'd be like, okay, one more door I can just pass by and keep moving. But if you're going to get someone to open the door, you do have to at least knock. We, we used to have a family friend who would visit us occasionally when we lived in Philly, and she had this habit of coming to our door and just standing there. She would open the screen door. I would be sitting in the living room. I could hear her open that, and then she would just stand there like she couldn't make up her mind if she wanted to be here or not. And I got to the point where I would just ignore her. I'd let her stand there for 10 minutes until she would work up the nerve to give a little tap or something. Georgia was nicer than me. She would just answer, but uh, I found it annoying. But by the same measure, isn't it fair for God to expect at least that much initiative? (laughs) How hard is it to ask, seek, and knock? You'd think he was asking us to storm a castle. And of course, he doesn't mean knocking on literal doors, but to ask God for what we want should not be as difficult as we seem to think it is. How many times I've heard Georgia say to one of my children, have you tried asking nicely? But plenty of us grown-ups should probably ask ourselves the same question when it comes to prayer. And Jesus is implying that the reason we don't ask, seek, or knock is because we don't expect an answer. But Jesus assures us that if we approach the Father, we will always get an answer, as he says in verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I think all of us at this point, if we're honest, we could throw a flag. We could object, right? Because all of us have had the experience of asking God for something and not getting it. You ask for healing for a sick loved one, and they end up dying anyway. Uh, You pray for a job you really wanted, and then you didn't get it. Uh, You pray for someone to get saved, and as far as you can tell, they died in rebellion. And it's tempting to say that Jesus must be exaggerating his point here. But as I looked at this, I, I, 
I came to realize something, and I want you to notice that what Jesus does not say, he does not say that everyone who asks receives exactly what they ask for, or that everyone who seeks finds exactly what they thought they were looking for, or even that the door or the window that gets opened is the same one that you were knocking on. There's a little bit of vagueness in verse 8, and our experience kind of backs that up, doesn't it? The sense you get is that when you ask, seek, and knock, something will happen. God answers prayer, but it's not always in the way you expect it. He doesn't exactly grab something off the registry. That's not how he rolls. So Jesus doesn't promise specifics. But what he does promise is that God will respond to prayer and that it will be good. How could it not be? If we expected otherwise, it would be to assume that God is either stupid or cruel. And Jesus illustrates the absurdity of drawing such a by drawing a ridiculous parallel for us to look at. He says in verses nine and ten, he says, "Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent?" Now, don't get me wrong; rocks are cool, uh, and so are snakes. And in fact, I bet there are some boys in this room who would prefer a snake to a fish if given the choice, especially as a pet. Um, but they didn't keep snakes as pets back then, and for good reason. Israel, even today, is home to many toxic snake species. And unlike today, the people of Roman Judea had no anti-venom. Snakes were a deadly issue, deadly pests. And rocks, some rocks are interesting, I guess, but you know, unless they sparkle, they don't make great gifts. My garden right now is overrun with rocks I'm trying to get rid of. If anybody wants gifts for Christmas or anything like that, you know, you can swing by. But, but that's the whole point. You know, it would not only be unkind, it would be stupid and completely ridiculous to give your kid a poisonous snake or a rock when he asked for something to eat. Now, that doesn't mean that you would necessarily give him bread or fish, but you would at least give him food is the idea, Right? We're not that dense. Something edible would make sense at that point. So Jesus asks this question rhetorically. The answer is obviously no. Nobody would do anything so ridiculous. And so he wraps up the lesson with these words. In verse 11 he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I love how Jesus turns on a dime like this, the way he does. Starts like a pep talk, and then he just kind of throws us all under the bus, you know. Jesus says that we are evil. I can't really argue with that point if I'm comparing myself as a father to the heavenly father, right? It's not much of a contest. He's not just a better version of me. He's everything I'm not. We're fallen creatures who do very little right. And even when we do things right, we often do it from a false or at least mixed motives. You know, we're clumsy and forgetful. We forget birthdays and holidays. And yet probably none of us would ever give our loved one a poisonous snake when they asked for a snack. Why? Because we're not crazy, right? It's kind of like the parable of the persistent widow. Even a godless king might give you justice because he's lazy and wants to be left alone. Likewise, even evil earthly fathers can give good gifts. I think of this in my own life. You know, my father was a good man and a good father, but my father never did the Christmas shopping, and he never bought my birthday presents. My father was just as surprised as we were when we were opening things on Christmas morning. But you know what? 
When my washing machine went out some years ago and we were strapped for cash, I could count on my dad to help us out with that. Not all gifts come with ribbons on December 25th, right? You know, our, our parents aren't wealthy, but I can count on them to help us if we ask. They wouldn't give me rocks or snakes, right? In fact, even some terrible fathers give great gifts because some dads treat gift-giving as an apology note for all their other failures. That's the evil dads. They still can give good gifts. So why do we think that God won't give good gifts? Maybe we think he doesn't know us well enough. But Jesus is trying to say that God would not put coal in your stocking, but we're not entirely convinced of that. Partly this is human nature. We deal with fallen fathers in our lives and that kind of thing. And, you know, if you look at the pagan gods of the ancient world, they were always a reflection of humanity and they were spiteful and cruel and unforgiving. But that's not the God we worship, right? Jesus says God is our father and he knows how to give good gifts to his children. So why don't we ask him? We who have the audacity to make registries for our weddings, announcing to everyone we know exactly what we want, we do not bring bold prayers to our Heavenly Father. I think a lot of us live impoverished prayer lives. If I'm honest, my prayers are like that. They do tend to be repetitive and simplistic and certainly not typically very bold. I wonder if that's true of our church generally. You know, the elders are going away this weekend, upcoming, and we're going to be talking about vision and mission for this church, because I've become convinced that we need to think bigger, and I think we need a shake-up, and we need a bigger picture, and I have said that from this pulpit, and I felt energized when I say it at times. I feel, like, worked up, but usually, within a day or two, I look at the future, and I think it's, mm, it's just too much. And I look at the vision and mission I've been working on, and I think there's no way we're ever going to grow and accomplish these things. We're never going to have the money. We're not going to have the people. I'm never going to be able to lead this effort, even if the people did come. And because I think this way, I think I tend to kind of end up praying that way. And so instead, I ask God for very little stuff. I ask him to get my sermon written this week. Uh, I ask him for the money to pay our bills this month. I ask him for strength to endure session meetings, you know, that kind of thing. And... There's nothing wrong with that. We should ask him for the little things, like I said, but I tend to kind of stop there. I'm pretty good at praying for daily bread. I'm not real good at asking, seeking, and knocking for the bigger stuff. Functionally, I think I expect God to say no, or else it's just going to be really hard, or that it's like he's going to just ignore it or something, and so I set very modest expectations, and I don't know, maybe some of you can relate to that. But if this church is going to be what I think it's called to be, I need to pray bigger and bolder prayers. And so do you. We need to start asking and seeking and knocking, even if we're knocking on the wrong doors. Our Father will open something, and it will be good. Do we believe that? So I really cover your prayers as we go away on Friday. I feel sheepish asking about it because I'm almost afraid to build myself up and, you know, just be disappointed or something. And maybe it's the, 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 what I talked about, that, that orphan tendency, and you tend to wonder, you know, is this going to really accomplish anything? But I am asking because Jesus tells me I should. So I am asking for your prayers. 
And uh, what if God doesn't answer the way we expected? That's okay. Because as I said, our Father doesn't shop from the registry. That may be annoying sometimes, especially when people are bad gift givers, but he's not. I can't tell every story of every bad gift I've ever received uh, because they put these things online and uh, they are broadcast far and wide and I, I don't know who's listening. But when we got married, uh, you know, we made the registry like people do and uh, we had some people who insisted on getting something unique and not on the registry and uh, those of them who knew us and loved us well uh, got us interesting things that were helpful and that we enjoyed. Uh, but one thing that we held on to for years and never did figure out even what it was was a steel piece of thick like wire that was shaped like I don't know what. Uh, we thought for a while that it was a book stand, maybe for like a cookbook or something, but it didn't work. And uh, then we thought, well, maybe it's a bike rack, but it was a little small for that. And then we thought, well, maybe it's a sculpture, but it was too ugly to be a sculpture. Like, none of these things made sense, and we just kind of held on to it for a long time, and we never did figure it out, so we eventually got rid of it because it wasn't attractive or useful or interesting. Our Heavenly Father isn't like that. When he goes off registry, it's because he has better taste than you do. He will give you the kind of gift you never thought to ask for, but that you are still going to be thankful for years later. And like any gift, God's gifts are a reflection of the giver. The best gifts are memorable in large part because they remind you of the giver. That's kind of one of the downfalls of a registry, right? You don't remember who bought you the specific things off of a registry. And, you know, sometimes a gift is really a gift. You know, people give a gift. It could be a reflection in the wrong way. You could give a gift that's a reflection of yourself because you really bought it for yourself. Like last year for Christmas, I got the kids an, an, an old-school Nintendo system. Who uses that mostly? <laughs> but in fairness, that gift will always remind them of me, Right? Gifts are meant to be a reflection of the giver. That's why we sometimes hold on to things we're never going to use, simply because it reminds us of somebody who's gone that we love, right? The best gifts aren't the registry gifts. They, they are gifts that we need and we enjoy, but there's other gifts that we would need and enjoy that we hadn't even thought of and that also remind us of the person that gave it to us. A few years back, well, many years back at this point, I nearly bought my mom a Norman Rockwell print, and it was a painting his painting, it's three umpires that are watching the rain and trying to decide if they should cancel the game. And my sister talked me out of it because she said, I was only picking that because I, it was a baseball painting and that's just something that, you know, you know, you find interesting. That's not what mom would want. And so I got her something else. But all these years later, I still regret not getting her that other print because I knew my mom loved Norman Rockwell and that painting would have been a perfect blend of her taste and mine. Every time she saw it, she would think of me and probably all of her sons, really. The best gifts are not the ones often that we pick for ourselves. It's when someone else who loves us and knows us picks for us. But that only works if that person not only loves you, but knows you well enough to know what you need and what you like and what you're good at. Someone who knows what's best for you. Good gift giving requires knowing the one you love, maybe better than they know themselves, and beloved, nobody knows you better than your heavenly father. He knows what makes you tick, 
He knows what you're good at because he designed you and he knows your inmost desires. But he wants you to ask, what do you really want? Have you tried asking nicely? Do you believe that the Father loves you and knows you well enough to give you what you need? Do you believe that he gives good gifts to his children? Unlike us husbands, God is a mind reader, but he wants you to say it anyway because the point is not getting the gift. The point is connecting with the giver. So maybe our prayer life is often pathetic, and it's because we don't believe these things. We don't receive because we don't ask, and we don't ask because we don't really believe the Father will give good gifts. But Jesus promises that whoever asks will indeed receive, not necessarily what they ask for, but something we never even thought to put on the registry. Beloved, we need to start making bold requests of our good Father. But we also need to know that the gospel is still true even when our prayers are weak. I said this months ago when we started this whole series, but you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of all his own commands, right? And as I reflected this week on my pathetic prayer life, by the end, I was really encouraged, actually, as I thought about this, because Jesus doesn't just command us to make bold requests. He sets the example, doesn't he? And a few passages came to mind. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Beloved, Jesus is asking for you. It is Jesus, the good shepherd, who seeks out his lost sheep, and it is Jesus who opened the door into the very presence of his Father. He does the knocking, too. As the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. All that's to say, beloved, is that we do not approach God boldly in our own strength. We come to him as our father and we can ask boldly because Jesus went there first and Jesus is already asking on your behalf. Jesus can promise that the father will answer because he made sure of it and he always answers Jesus. And when our prayers are weak and we're afraid to ask and afraid to seek and afraid to knock, Jesus does it for us. That's what he came for. And that is good news, beloved. Let's pray. Gracious God, our very good and gift-giving Father, we thank you that, Lord, you don't need to hear us say anything to know what we need. Lord, you love us and you know us so perfectly well and you know exactly what we need even when we don't know and we don't know how to ask for it. But Lord, we pray that rather than making us complacent, Lord, that that would give us confidence to approach you, Lord, because what's important is not the gifts but the connection with the giver. And we pray that when we do receive the things that you are going to give us, 
even if they're not exactly what we asked for, Lord, that if nothing else, they would continuously remind us of the one who gave it to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our prayers. Help us to pray big prayers, Lord, and to expect that you will answer, Lord, even if it's not the way we thought. We ask these things in the name of your Son, who is interceding for us as well. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from